This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. From the war in Ukraine to food and energy security to China's role in the global economy, there's lots happening right now for us to try and make sense of. The outcomes are unknown, but their impact on our future could be potentially huge. So on this show, I speak to Adam Tooze. Adam's a professor of history at Columbia University in New York with a particular interest in 20th century history and contemporary politics and economics. He's also a podcaster with his show Ones and Twos and an author of a new book, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. In particular, we talk about six events happening right now that could shape the world of the future. We start with the terrible situation in Ukraine and Adam's thoughts on how and when it might end. It's been a huge surprise. I mean, I don't think many people expected Putin to actually invade Ukraine. And then if he had, I think we all, as you say, expected it to be short. The Russians would roll over the Ukrainian forces. And the totally confusing thing that's happened is that Ukraine has stood up and mounted dramatically successful effort to stop the Russians. And that, in a sense, has forced everyone in the West's hand to the point now where the openly declared ambition of the US government is to attrit Russia's military power to the point where it can't do anything like this again, which is a huge blow to Russia. I mean, let's be clear, if you rob a country of the ability to declare war, it may sound cynical and scary, but you're stripping it of a key element of its sovereignty. America certainly wouldn't accept being deprived of the ability to declare war if it felt like doing so. So it's, we've moved from a world where we expected this to be short, sharp and brutish and nasty, but at least that, to this open confrontation in which both Ukraine and its backers and Russia and its more quiet backers have everything at stake. And it's pretty difficult to see you know, what the outcome is here, which is why secret negotiations or not so secret negotiations are going on on the one side and why, on the other hand, the military effort is being ramped up by both sides. It's certainly very difficult to see, and Zelensky has said this outright, how the Ukrainians can settle now for the status quo. I mean, they now have, at the very least, to mount a counteroffensive of their own. That, I think, is what the American military re-equipment of Ukraine is intended to deliver the capacity for. And how that goes is, is really anyone's guess. And there is, of course, since that first weekend of the war, the terrifying possibility of an asymmetric escalation on the Russian side. But the basic condition of our existence right now is that we are in the middle of a big war, a hot war, thousands of people are getting killed, and we do not have a clear vision of how it ends. Are there any wars from history that we might be able to learn from that relate to the current situation? It's really difficult to think of any because the point that was driven home to us in February was that Russia is the number two nuclear power in the world. And that makes this different. Um, it's not so far in play. It's difficult to understand anything of what the Americans are doing in terms of pouring tens of billions of dollars into Ukraine now, unless they have some kind of intelligence which tells them that, in fact, the nuclear option for Russia is off the table, at least in the short run, at least unless things get really extreme. 
but seen in, in broader terms, you know, the last time there was a, a major power conventional, you know, two countries that were locked in battle, which where for both of them, everything was existential. It's not 2003 because the West could have been there or not in Iraq, right? Um, it's not Afghanistan, um, though we ended up losing to the Taliban because we can pull away. It's a bit embarrassing. It's probably Iran-Iraq in the 1980s between the Iranian revolutionary, Islamic revolution and Saddam Hussein. That was all or nothing. And that escalated to chemical weapons and child soldiers en masse. And then maybe the Arab-Israeli conflict, 73, when Israel was really challenged by the Arab coalition. But none of those are scenarios with the world's second largest nuclear arsenal on one side. And none of those were scenarios where NATO has adopted all measures short of war in backing one side in this conflict. With Israel, we came pretty close in 73, but there was more division within the ranks in the West in 73 over Israel than there is now over Ukraine. So it's a new configuration. It's extremely alarming. Um, and so I don't even think we should, to me, I want to, as a historian, there are moments when it's useful to look back in history for wisdom, for clarity. There are also moments where I think the responsible thing for the historian to do is to say, we've never seen this before, and, and it could get even worse. The next thing that's dominating people's thoughts is inflation. So how are you, in view, how are you viewing the inflation situation at the moment? Well, it, it does affect... The thing about inflation, unlike unemployment, for instance, as an economic problem, is that unemployment affects... Uh, not small, but it affects pockets of people, right? So a really bad unemployment crisis will be 10% unemployment. Great Depression will be 20 or 30%. The majority of people in the Great Depression, even in Germany and in the United States in the 1930s, were still employed. That's the fact of the matter. With inflation, it affects absolutely everyone. Um, it affects them in a creeping way, and it affects, of course, those on lowest income uh, hardest because they all of a sudden find their fuel bills, their food, their food bills, the, the petrol they need to get to work is going up in price and eating into those fragile budgets. So it's, a, it's an extremely serious problem um, in, across Europe. Um, Americans complain about it a lot, and given inequality there, those at the bottom of the, of the pile really have a tough time. It's not for nothing they have a giant food stamps regime. But the energy price shock that Europe has experienced, especially around gas, is like nothing we've ever seen before. It's, it's uh, twice as severe as anything we saw in the 1970s, around gas specifically, not oil. And gas is what goes into electricity and domestic heating, so it affects you in a very direct way. Um, the question is, will it last? Can it go on like this? Will this spill over into perpetual motion inflation? And I think that's really the difference between now and the 1970s, is in the 70s, inflation can be reasonably seen as the result of social groups, big forces, organised labour, trade unions, struggling with employers over who gets what slice of the cake. And you could say, unfortunately, or other people would say, fortunately, right now that isn't our problem, right? Inflation is a problem for low-income people, but low-income people don't have much bargaining power. Um, they don't have many ways of pushing back. And the, that means this is a social crisis, um, and it's a crisis in which those most disadvantaged groups have very little leverage. They can perhaps rely on the, you know, the goodwill of, of the better off people in society. And that's essentially the model I think we operate. But it also means that I think the inflation is unlikely to last because we don't have the flywheel. We don't have the flywheel of trade union bargaining, the famous wage price spiral. It's just not happening. If it were, people wouldn't feel so hard up. It's not happening. And so real incomes are falling. And um, that's all the difference in the world, right? Um, so it, it also means that after this has worked its way through, after some people have paid the price for this adjustment, and it will be those at the bottom of the pile who do, it's quite likely that this will ever weigh. And there's lots of ways in which central bankers and people like that talk about this in veiled terms. They'll talk about second round effects. We don't want those. Second round effect is when somebody sticks their price up 
and everyone else reacts by trying to raise their wages. Right? Central bankers don't want to see that. Like Andrew Bailey made that perfectly clear. Another thing they'll fret about is inflation expectations. You'll see a lot of talk about this. We're worrying that inflation expectations become unanchored. Well, inflation expectations become unanchored is when we say to ourselves, hell, like last month, inflate, you know, prices went up by this amount. I think they're going to go up by that amount in future. And so I need to start adjusting myself. And, and what the markets are broadly saying so far is that inflation expectations have remained broadly anchored, which means that we don't, no one really expects this to burn much further than 2023, 2024. But it, is it going to hurt? In the meantime, sure it is. And is that why it's part of the reason why central banks are sticking solidly to their rate, uh, rate rising expectations? They, they want to raise rates to signal to people that inflation expectations should remain anchored. They are, in an extent, responding to social problems. There's no doubt about that. One shouldn't, one shouldn't demonise central bankers. The, the market they're most reactive to is the bond market. Um, and um, what they're doing is steadying nerves there. Because if you're invested in bonds, unlike shares, bonds are you know, a fixed nominal amount of money. It's £100 that you've put in, $1,000. And as inflation will just eat away at that. Now, it's not pretty for bond investors when they stick interest rates up either, because when you buy the bonds, you're expecting a certain amount of interest, 2%, 3% or whatever. And as they raise rates, that makes those bonds less attractive to hold, the ones you've already got. But as this shakes out further down the line and inflation subsides, the bondholders will feel better again because they're no longer losing. It's like a tax on them, essentially, inflation. And that's the market that the central bankers have to worry about because it's so gigantic. So the American so in government bond market is 20 trillion, not billion, 20 trillion dollars, 20,000 billion dollars worth of bonds. That's a huge amount of wealth. And all of that is hinged on expectations about interest rates and prices. You mentioned the 1970s a couple of minutes ago. Um, I got an email this morning from the IMF. And as far as I can see, it's the first one I've got from the IMF, specifically mentioning <coughs> stagflation as the real threat. Yeah. Is, that what, is, that, is that the way you see it? That is the nightmare. The nightmare of stagflation is this concept of stagnation and inflation at the same time. Those shouldn't go together, right? Because normally, when you, you get inflation, when you've got a booming economy, and when you've got a recession, the only good thing about a recession is that prices fall, or at least don't rise as much. So when you get both of those bad things at the same time, it's the worst possible outcome. And for a while, at least in the 70s, that was the story. And so that's what the central bankers are worried about right now, right? If they, if they raise rates too fast, they may kill inflation, but they may kill inflation in the process of uh, damaging the economy to such an extent that um, it slows down and we get rising unemployment. To be honest, if you actually face the facts of the situation, the one really big test of the hypothesis that raising rates is a way of actually repressing inflation, which amongst economists is actually more contested than you might expect, but the one historical demonstration of this is in 1979 through the early 1980s, the so-called Volcker shock, when Paul Volcker, the then head of the Fed in the United States, stuck interest rates up. The short-term rate went to as high as 20% in the early 1980s. And that did indeed cause a huge recession. And as a consequence of that, inflation stopped dead and fell very dramatically and never really recovered after that. So no one, I think, thinks that we're headed towards that scenario. Um, but is there a risk, particularly in Europe, that raising rates right now, given all of the other pressures on Europe, could cause a really rather abrupt and unfortunate slowdown, or at least an end to the recovery from COVID? Because remember, like six months, two years ago, all we were worried about was COVID. We are supposed to be in a recovery phase. If we stick interest rates up now, we could strangle that. And that would, that would give us something like a stagflationary problem. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. 
And obviously, speaking of inflation, we've obviously had massive food inflation as well. And there's talk of energy security being an issue. We've already had India stopping supplies of commodities coming out of their country. How serious a situation do you see that? All of these problems of price adjustment are problems essentially of inequality and poverty, right? In and of themselves, they are the market economy functioning. We're supposed to like this, right? This is supposed to be efficient. It produces innovation because if prices go up, people have the incentive to do good things. Um, But the problem is if you've got societies like any rich capitalist Western democracy like Britain, the United States, Europe, where you have people whose incomes are really very low and wealth inequality and income inequality is huge. And at the bottom of the pile, that normal adjustment in energy prices causes a manifest crisis. You know, um, pensioners living on state pension cannot survive doubling or tripling of gas prices, right? I mean, this is a huge shock to their incomes. Um, Globally speaking, the same then applies to food prices. Um, The food market is one of the oldest global markets in the world. There's sophisticated commodity trading. The price signals that are being sent right now will encourage farmers all over the world to start, you know, ploughing fields, uh, planting new crops, and will shift the balance of supply um, over the next year or two. Um, There's no reason to expect, think that we don't have enough land ultimately to, you know, meet demands. We're well away from that kind of scenario. The problem is, A, the time's at time lag, right? So it takes time, obviously, for crops to mature and for the harvest to come in. There are also a bunch of really nasty shocks right now, droughts and so on, which we can attribute in various ways to climate change. But the really big issue is that there are a cluster of medium to low-income countries which are heavily dependent on food imports. And they are really in the crosshairs of the crisis right now. The biggest one is Egypt. You, you know, you might think from biblical times as the Nile, Nile River as being, you know, a great breadbasket of the world. But the population of Egypt has exploded and the big urban populations of, of that country are desperately vulnerable to rapidly rising food prices. Governments can offset this to a degree by offering bread price subsidies, but then you end up with a government budget problem because the support spirals and then you have a fiscal crisis and then the IMF comes knocking and you just need... That's the thing that we're worried about. It is medium to low-income countries, strategic players like Egypt, which are hugely dependent. If you think about where Egypt is, they get their grain across the Black Sea and the eastern Mediterranean from Ukraine and Russia, and that supply is interrupted. Lebanon is a big importer. A lot of the East African countries, which were success stories in recent years, are also quite vulnerable. Um, Most of the really big societies in the world, India, China, Europe, the United States, are largely self-sufficient, often net exporters. And frankly, if we did things like stopping using uh, corn for ethanol production, we could release huge uh, amounts of, of food into the system. There is no good reason why anyone should starve. The reason why they will is that income and wealth are massively unequal distri- unequally distributed and our capacity to offset that in a crisis turns out lament- to be lamentably weak. So we, shall ex- we should expect, and this is the harsh reality of the, coming mo- of the coming years, is that we think somewhere in the order of 200 million people are going to slide back towards food emergency and there are going to be millions of premature deaths as a result. And slightly related to that is the next subject, climate change. Well, the problem just builds and builds and builds and builds, right? And uh, the really alarming development of the, the last 12 months is that as energy prices have surged, this has opened the door to a huge comeback of the fossil energy lobby. Um, and, you know, it's easy to make the case now that we actually need to start drilling for gas and building pipelines and building the whole infrastructure for more fossil fuel consumption. And there are large parts of the world, low-income, medium-income world, which currently consume virtually no energy, which desperately need all of that infrastructure. There is going to be a future for LNG in Asia 
uh, Africa's barely begun to consume energy at the level that it needs to achieve sustainable development. But for the rich countries in particular, there's really no excuse. Um, and the, the right way out of this dilemma is to double down and to say that, you know, the security problem of our strategic dependence on players like Russia for oil and gas now goes hand in hand with the decarbonisation agenda. And um, there, is no, there is no time to lose, right? The thing about, traditionally, somebody might have said, well, the war in Ukraine is this urgent thing. We need to address that. We need to get through the next winter. Um, uh, and so we need to do our best to find LNG and gas wherever we are in the world. But if we are serious about the climate problem, the gap between the long distance future and the present has now collapsed. We have 30 years to get to net zero. That means that rich countries need to reduce their emissions by 7 to 8% per annum every single year. That means they need to reduce their emissions by 1.5% per quarter. That means you need to reduce your emissions today and tomorrow and the day after and the day after that every single day, relentlessly for 30 years. And that is the daunting proposition we face. So a crisis like the Russian one should not be regarded as a temporary deflection so we focus on that until we get back to climate. We should seize it as an opportunity to say, right, the first lot of fossil fuels we whack are all the Russian ones. We're going to take them out of the system by early next year because we need to take them out of the system. We've somehow got to get our 7% reduction done this year. And if we don't do 7% this year, we've got to do 14% next year, which is cataclysmic. Right? That's like a recession level. These are huge numbers we're talking about here. So in the only place in the world where I see that kind of logic really being spelled out reasonably clearly with, you know, qualifications is Europe, because it's a huge energy importer. They know that for them it's a win-win situation. And I think their politics is broadly processing that reality. The, ter the terrifying thing is on the other side of the Atlantic, it plays out completely differently. And America is at this point AWOL as a climate partner. Biden came in with many, many commitments, and they will still do things at the industrial and business level that are very meaningful and very significant. And the American R&D powerhouse is, is a force to be reckoned with. But as a matter of national policy, all they're doing right now is pumping as quickly as they can, trying to get the price down. Do you think financial markets realise just how much of a threat this might be to the financial system? I think, I think the, to my mind, and this is kind of heretical to say this, but I think the financial stability aspect of this is overplayed. I understand the politics of making that move. We came out of 2008 with a really capacious financial stability agenda. Right? Banks had gone broke effectively and had to be bailed out and nationalized. That made us hypersensitive to the financial stability concern. And then you built a high, entire apparatus of regulation known as macroprudential regulation and stress testing and all of this for banks. And so then it was really super interesting to say, well, what else could we bolt in here? And then along came the climate problem and an ambitious Mark Carney. And Mark Carney put the pieces together in this brilliant speech he gave and said, right, OK, so climate is a financial stability problem. And so it's a central banker's problem. And so we can do all of this together. I think it's a dead end. Because if you look hard at the balance sheets of major banks, it's just not there. That's not how they're set up. Their debts roll off too quickly. Their balance sheets are too strong. Climate change is a huge problem. And banks are a huge problem for climate change, not because climate change is going to destabilize the banks, but because the banks lend so much money to fossil fuel companies that drive the climate change, right? We've got this the wrong way around. The problem, the, the attraction of the Mark Carney thing was it avoided politics. We all agree financial stability is bad. We all agree climate's bad. We can put the two together and say we can whack both with one policy, right? That's basically a way of saying we don't have to disagree about this. The hard choices are when you say you have got to stop funding coal, gas and oil now. No ifs, no buts, you've just got to stop doing it. And not because it will jeopardise your stability, but because we cannot afford you to be pumping this stuff. And no one wants to say that. That's painful. 
And, but that's the necessary thing that we need to do. So the financial stability to climate thing was a dead end. It was politically convenient, but where we really need to go is actually towards directing money away from the bad stuff and towards the good stuff. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash investor download. Okay, you mentioned it briefly earlier when we were talking about food security, uh, global inequality. Um, we've seen uh, march towards populism, some might say, certainly in uh, Europe and perhaps in America as well. Where do you see, is this just a process, a cycle we're going through that might, might be short term? Is this a longer term issue? I think the populism issue in Europe is sort of, you know, somewhat overplayed at this point. I think you can kind of classify populist issues into sort of spectacular individual examples or sort of squeaky wheels like an Orban in Hungary who uses his, you know, troublesomeness to, to gain leverage. But then there's systemically relevant populism. And the two really big systemically relevant populisms right now are India and the United States. They're the two biggest quote-unquote democracies in the world, and both of them are in jeopardy. You could add Brazil to that list, but I actually think Bolsonaro is going to lose. But the GOP in the United States is making a huge comeback. (laughs) From 2022 to 2024, it's going to entirely dominate the American agenda. And they are, you have to say it, there's no no two sides to this. A force currently corrosive of the rule of law in the American Constitution and quite openly committed, if necessary, to overturning democratic majorities. One of the things that was really... Um, Europeans were excluded from in 2020 as a result of COVID and not being able to visit the United States is the extraordinary jeopardy that the American Constitution was in between November 2020 and January, February 2021. It was like nothing I've ever experienced. Waking up in the morning and genuinely not knowing whether, whether the rule of law and the constitution of the democracy that you inhabit was going to prevail. Seriously not knowing, day after day after day, waiting for senior politicians from the GOP to say they recognised the obvious outcome of the election and watching other members of the GOP deliberately trying to subvert that outcome. That is the reality that Biden and Harris took us out of. That is the reality we're going back into. Scary stuff. Will the, there's a cost of living squeeze going on around the world and central banks at the same time raising interest rates and tightening money supply. Could that affect things as well? Would that accelerate the populism march? We'll have to see. I mean, populism is an opportunistic politics. It depends on whether it seizes on the issue, right? I mean, think about the migration issue in the UK, a huge thing that was blown up in time for the referendum, and now opinion in Britain has changed radically on migration. It's really remarkable to watch. Populists are above all political entrepreneurs. If they seize on this inflation issue, they can really make it hurt, I think. It'll be very interesting to see. Um, to my mind, it's not obvious that they have any answers to the actual problems of hard-up people who can't afford their energy bills, right? That's an issue which is either a matter of labour organisation to give them some voice, or it's a matter of highly targeted welfare policy, more kind of Tony Blair-style type of politics, right? Connect up the dots, all that kind of thing. Populism isn't really an answer to that, um, and it's been exposed as such. I don't think we, in fact, should be too simplistic about assuming that inequality is really the driver of, you know, it, populism operates in a more compensatory you know, give me this satisfaction to allow me to deal with uh, this problem rather than actually trying to address the problem as such. But are, is the discontent, is the frustration um, in rich countries, in rich democracies, absolute that there is. OK, so the final thing that might be on uh, investors' minds is China's role around the globe. So let's take it for economically speaking as well. I mean, we've seen what happened when COVID strikes and supply chains shut down. Where do you see China's role in the global economy? Single biggest uncertainty in the global outlook for the world economy in 2022, 2023 is still COVID and still China. 
If you look at the modelling, that's what the models tell you. There's one scenario in which the Chinese, as it were, managed to contain their COVID issue, which probably means some sort of off-ramp for the zero COVID thing of huge rollout of vaccinations that allows them to escape, or they get caught in this repeated cycle of lockdowns. And then the Chinese growth engine for the world economy is missing. And that moves the, that really moves the, the, the needle on, on the global growth story. It's a bigger uncertainty than either Fed policy risk or energy prices. Um, the central issue for American policy, and this relates to Ukraine as well, is China. Grand, American grand strategy is about the containment, attrition and reduction of the Chinese threat in the current moment, whether that's through tech policy or through the build-up of military forces of a new kind. The, the American strategy of attriting Russia is essentially taking advantage of the current situation in Ukraine so as to clear one of the major enemies away and for them to be able to better focus on China. There's no doubt that, that one of the very few things that the policymaking establishment in Washington can agree on is that China is the challenge of the, of the years to come. Here's what else investors are talking about. The impact of China's zero COVID policy on supply chains, rising commodity prices, and a service sector resurgence. Economist David Rees gives his three reasons why inflation isn't going away anytime soon. You can read David's full article at schroders.com forward slash insights, where you can read, watch, and listen to much, much more. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers.